In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Your eyes are like a window. You can get a pretty good idea how someone is feeling by looking at their eyes. Is he angry or sad? Is she tired or happy? Is he bored or excited? All of this comes from looking at the eye. To put it in more common psychological language, the eyes are the window to the soul. Someone on the outside can look in and see how you are doing. But, like a window, your eyes also enable you to look out at the world. You can see the reality of what is around you. If your window is clear, then you see rightly. But if your window gets dirty, then everything looks wrong. Ask those with cataracts. They could have blurry vision, or they may see double, or be unable to make out some colors. Everything they look at just appears bad. Or have you ever tried to drive at night with a dirty windshield? It's really hard to see what's going on. And I'm sure that most of you who wear glasses have had this experience. You start to realize that everything around you looks kind of hazy and dull, or you see spots that aren't really there. And if you're like me, it takes a while to figure out it's not the world that's suddenly gotten very hazy. It's your glasses. And so we need to be able to properly perceive the world around us in order to rightly interact with it. If you misjudge where a step is, you're going to fall. And so in the same way, we use our spiritual eyes to look at the world and make judgments about it. We can look at a story and judge it to be true or false. Or we could see a family with faithful husband and wife, children who honor their parents, and judge it to be good and right. We can look at theft or adultery and judge it to be wrong. We need to be able to look at the world and judge rightly what we see. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So just as our physical eyes can see inaccurately, the window of our spiritual eyes can become clouded. And as a window becomes clouded, it functions less and less like a window. And it starts to work like a kind of mirror. Now, when you look into the world through this dirty window, you not only see a distorted image of reality, you also see in the world and in those around you a fuzzy image of yourself. You see your own sins 
on others. And sometimes even you become blind to other sins, seeing only those sins which are actually your own. Now, our psychologists will tell us that this is called projection, where you take some fault of yourself and you project it on to the other person. By putting the distorted image of your sin on someone else, you make yourself look downright clean by comparison. And so we see this is just another way to describe self-justification, a way to remove your sins from you and put them on your neighbor instead. It's another way we fool ourselves into thinking that we are righteous because we see evil somewhere else. So let's see how all of this works in our gospel text. Now, since the beginning of Lent, the demons have been everywhere. Jesus does battle with Satan, the chief demon, in the wilderness. Last week, he healed a woman's demon-possessed daughter. And today, Jesus is casting out a demon. The way Luke introduces this narrative, it sounds as though Jesus was always casting out demons. And in a way, I think this is right. Demons aren't all that common in the Old Testament. But when Jesus shows up, suddenly demons are everywhere. Now, ever since the fall into sin, Satan has a kind of reign and rule over this world. So when Jesus comes, he starts doing battle with Satan. Every work that Jesus does among us is a work against the devil. So now, before Jesus is a man who has been rendered mute by the evil spirit that has taken over him. The devil is strong, and so are his demons. They are fallen angels, warriors of God's army who have sinned. They are much stronger than you and me, and we cannot control them by our own power. That's why we stay away from witchcraft and Ouija boards. We keep away from the demonic, even though it might look like with these things that we are in control. The demons lie. It is they who are in control. And these are among the sins that St. Paul mentions, even following our epistle reading, that must not be named among you. Now, because the demons and all the forces of evil are strong, because they are mighty, they can destroy the life of any man in the blink of an eye. The one under demonic control is completely and utterly helpless. In the case of the man in our text, he was mute. And as we will see regarding Jesus' opponents, they are also helpless, blind to their own blindness. Now, we aren't given much detail about this exorcism, 
but you've heard other accounts of Jesus driving out demons. All it takes is a word. Jesus speaks and the demons flee. The strength of the demons is no match for him. He scolds and they obey. They have no choice. It's as if he simply flicks them away like a speck of dirt. They are under his authority. Now, rid of the demon, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Everyone knew that any man with power over demons must be a strong man. Indeed, he must be a stronger man. But what could it be that makes Jesus stronger? Some of the people think they know. The people marveled, but some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Not everyone agrees about how Jesus does his mighty work. But even the, ancient magici- even the magicians in ancient Egypt know what is happening. For they see the sign they cannot reproduce. And they say, this is the finger of God. But not so for Jesus' opponents. They see that Jesus has authority over the demons And they also know that demons won't listen to men, but demons will listen to a stronger demon. Therefore, they conclude, Jesus has control of the demons because he has a bigger, stronger demon. Jesus' opponents know the only way to order a demon around is with a greater authority. But it seems that the only greater power they are able to imagine is Beelzebul, more literally, Lord of the Flies, the master of decay and death and disorder. Now, you and I know this judgment is utterly wrong. It's downright evil. They slander Jesus himself, and they say that God has a demon, or God is a demon. The man before them must be possessed by the prince of demons. When they look at Jesus, they see a demon. A couple of weeks, we'll hear the Jews make this claim about him yet again. But something has gone wrong with Jesus' opponents. For they look at the one who casts out demons, who brings health and healing and wholeness, who restores sight and raises the dead, and they conclude he is a demon. The opponents do not join the crowd and marvel. Instead, they pretend to know what Jesus is thinking. They pretend to know his true nature, And they accuse. Now the irony is this. Only one with a truly twisted mind would make this kind of accusation. Only one in league with the devil would dare to call Jesus a demon.
their eyes are darkened, and they cannot see rightly. When they look out at Jesus, they see only dim reflections of themselves. They see only their sin and the darkness of their own hearts. And since they believe themselves righteous, they conclude that everything they see Jesus doing is evil. They see only a mirage, a distortion of the truth. The trouble with a blind spot is that you can't see it. They don't know they judge improperly until someone shows them what has gone wrong with their eyes. Wearing my glasses, it can be hard to see all the dust that has settled on the lenses, and all the micro-scratches look like odd distortions in the world. But it's only when I take off my glasses and look at them instead of looking through them and hold them up to the light, then I begin to see what has gone wrong. So the one who is the truth must open their eyes to see reality rightly. Though they falsely believe to know what Jesus is thinking, our text tells us plainly, he knows their thoughts. So he tells a parable to enlighten them. He answers in a way that even those who despise the truth can understand. It is, I guess, when he quotes Abraham Lincoln. A kingdom against itself is laid waste. A house divided falls. I could imagine a whole host of sermons that could be preached on this parable alone. It applies to the family, to the whole church, and the individual congregation, the state, and every branch of government, even entire nations. A kingdom set against itself cannot stand. A man with a divided heart cannot stand. The official with divided loyalties cannot stand. The family undermining itself cannot stand. And even the congregation, members opposed to and fighting one another, cannot stand. But Jesus here wants us to consider one kingdom in particular, the kingdom of Satan. If Satan is divided against himself, he cannot stand. If he undermines his own authority, his kingdom will fall. And so, Jesus says, if Satan is not working against himself, and yet his kingdom is falling, that means he is opposed. The one stronger than Satan has come. Your eyes deceive you. What you witness is not Satan attacking his own house. Rather, you see the one who has come to destroy Satan's house to turn it into a pile of rubble. And here's the real trouble for Jesus' opponents. They think Jesus is evil because they have imposed their own motivations on him. 
and yet it is they themselves who are evil. So when Jesus comes to destroy Satan's kingdom, their house will fall too. St. Paul writes to Titus, To the pure, all things are pure, but to to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Jesus is diagnosing their corruption. Their minds are defiled. Their consciences have become dirty. The window through which they see the world has become unclear, soiled by their own sin. And so it is Jesus, whose eyes are clear, who judges rightly. They are under the devil's kingdom. The devil has claimed them as his own. But Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish, not even his opponents. So he works to enlighten the darkness of their thinking. And he turns the question back on them. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So Jesus takes the discussion away from judging intentions, and he turns to the nature of exorcism. Whoever casts out demons can only do so by God or by Satan. And if it is true, as they say, that Jesus casts out demons by Beelzebul, then wouldn't that mean the same thing for their disciples? Would they not also be casting out demons by Satan's authority? Would they also not be possessed by a demon? So there are only two options. Either you are with Jesus or you are against him. There is no middle way for Jesus or against This, by the way, is the reason we hear an exorcism in the baptismal rite. Not that we are saying that the candidate for baptism is possessed by a demon, but we are confessing that every child of Adam is born under the power of the devil and part of his kingdom. And every one of us must be rescued from that captivity, that rescue is what Jesus describes in the parable of the stronger man. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. The demon who possessed the man was strong, but the one who cast him out was stronger. The strong man guarded his palace and his goods, and the mute man was among those goods. You, also, are included in this parable. You were among the goods that Satan guarded. Born in sin, you belonged to him, and you lived under him in his kingdom, serving him in his ways, of darkness. 
All those in the darkness of this world are themselves darkness. Their eyes are clouded, so they are unable to see the truth. And you remained under his rule because of your sin. But none of this is an obstacle for the stronger man. If Jesus does his work by the finger of God, then nothing will be able to stand against him, not even the devil himself. We've seen this Jesus at work throughout the season of Lent. Jesus is bringing the fight to the devil, and Jesus is never defeated. He is undoing the devil's kingdom, removing his armor, releasing his possessions. The devil never stood a chance, really. It's not as though he could win against God. But then there came a day when the stronger man didn't look so strong. No longer did he flick the demons around by a finger. Now he permits his hands to be anchored to the wood and his fingers cramp and contort. In truth, he was strong, but he laid aside his power to become weak, to take all our sin into his own flesh, to permit the demons to have their way with him. The foe in triumph shouted when Christ lay in the tomb, but lo, he now is routed, his boast is turned to gloom, for Christ again is free. In glorious victory, he who is strong to save has triumphed o'er the grave. Jesus had tricked the devil, for the weakness of our Lord was his strength. Now Satan's kingdom has been divided, and his kingdom will fall. The spoils will go to the eternal victor. And so whenever one is baptized into Christ, Satan's kingdom is falling. You were held captive by the strong man, but now the stronger man has come. In holy baptism, he reclaimed you from the devil's domination and dominion. And no matter how the devil has a hold on you, Jesus continues to be at work, plundering Satan's goods, working to reclaim you over and over throughout our Lord's ministry. He defeated the devil. We heard in the last couple of weeks how he cast out the demons of self-trust and apathy, And today, the demons of projection and self-justification, he sends away by the finger of God. And in their place, he gives his Holy Spirit. He has brought you into his kingdom, the Holy Church, the one undivided house of which he is the head. And this day, he has brought you into his house, the house of God the house of the strongest man, to receive his saving gifts. And so blessed are you, for in Christ you see rightly. Blessed are you who hear the word of God and keep it. 
Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you this day. In the holy name of Jesus, amen. The peace of God keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.